The Highlander Podcast is brought to you by Outdoor Product Design and Development, a four-year undergraduate degree focused on training the next generation of product creators for the sports and outdoor industries. Learn more at opdd.usu.edu. The Highlander Podcast is sponsored by the Outdoor Recreation Archive, a collaboration between OPDD and USU Special Collections to preserve the history and print materials of the people, products, and brands of the outdoor industry. Follow the archive at Outdoor Rec Archive on Instagram. The Highlander Podcast is sponsored by the Utah Outdoor Association, a business association focused on elevating Utah's outdoor industry through educational programming and events. Their membership consists of Utah's outdoor manufacturers, retailers, outfitters, and guides. Member benefits include networking opportunities, recruitment of talent, and brand promotion. More information about volunteering and membership is available at utahoutdoor.org. On this episode, we talk with Drew Akins, the North American Marketing Manager for Hester Gloves. We talk about all the different hats that a marketing manager wears, how to break into the outdoor industry, and the importance of becoming a generalist and having range. Okay, welcome back, everyone. This is Chase, and joining me today is Drew Akins, uh, marketing manager at Hestra Gloves. Um, thanks for joining me. It's good to have you. Yeah, thanks for having me, Chase. Yeah, well, I appreciate you reaching out. Um, we we talked. I think it was, I don't know, it was a few years ago. Maybe it was when you started in the position here in North America. Hestra is a Swedish brand. I don't know if you were getting involved in the very early days of the brand, like getting established here and in the States or what, but we initially connected then, and then you reached back out expressing some interest in, in getting involved with our students. So I appreciate that um, and, and appreciate the time uh, to just talk a little bit about your, your experience in the outdoor industry, how you got to where you are, lessons learned, all of that. So thanks for taking time. Yeah, absolutely. Happy to uh, to jump in. I have uh, been around for a little bit now, and it's good to be able to share some of the, the things I've learned uh, with folks who are trying to get into this industry we love so much. Right. Did I get our the the timeline down? I guess we'll get into some of that, but was that early days of when you were working for the company? Yeah, so I am uh, about to hit my three-year anniversary at Hestra, and so uh, yeah, those were the uh, the early days of my my tenure here, and uh yeah, at that point, I was just trying to uh, to kind of reach out and make connections, and uh, always good to to meet new faces. So uh, yeah, glad this is coming full circle here. Yeah, totally. How did you? I guess we're going to go a little further back, but how did you initially break into the outdoor industry, or or I guess how about the outdoors in general? Did you always have a connection to the outdoors, to the outdoor industry, outdoor products? Yeah. So uh, I have a, a kind of a unique. Uh, background. My dad uh, was a recreation major in college and uh, one of the few people who I know who uh, majored in recreation and then uh, pursued a, a job in recreation as well. And I feel like in, a, in an era now where we are so multifaceted that uh, he's pretty unique, but he jumped into a job with uh, the state park system in Georgia, which is where I'm from, and uh, and spent 31 years of his career uh, stewarding people through the outdoors, uh, running parks and overseeing all the operations there. So I grew up on uh, the biggest state park in Georgia and uh, had about 10,000 acres as my backyard. So my brother and I lived on the park with my parents and uh, we had full rain. So uh, we had uh, lakes and ponds and forests and uh, and trails and 
Um, you know, we just had access to so many of the niceties of, of the natural surroundings there in, in South Georgia. So really, really lucky. And uh, kind of conversely, my mom was in marketing uh, as her career. So I, I like to say I've uh, been the, the complement of my two parents, kind of mix those things together and uh, created a job. What was it in those days that you like realized that working in the outdoor industry could be a career or did that come along later? Yeah, I think it was a, you know, a pretty natural thing for me just being surrounded by people whose jobs were in the outdoors. It never occurred to me that that wasn't a thing or that that was something that I would have to go and, and kind of create. Um, you know, my dad had done it for his entire career. And so day in and day out, we saw him engaging with campers and hikers and, and people who were in for the day and um, really seeing people come alive when they got out of the city and got out of their daily grind and spent some time uh, kind of taking a deep breath and enjoying nature. So it, it really was like from day one, understanding that this is a, a viable, feasible kind of career path. Uh, and, and then I just had to find my own way within that. Right. So when did that first opportunity um, present itself to, to work in the outdoor industry? How was that transition? Yeah, I uh, actually went to college thinking I was going to get into uh, professional sports. And so I, uh, I was a sport management major. I was thinking, you know, pro sports at a high level and even went on to do my master's and worked in the NFL for a little bit, worked with an MLS club and, uh, and then kind of realized that that wasn't as fulfilling as I, I thought it would be personally. And, uh, and so my wife and I decided to move to, uh, to Colorado and, uh, I was lucky enough to get a chance in the, uh, in the climbing industry with a nonprofit there. And, uh, they, they took a chance on me. I had no relevant experience and, uh, and lucky for me, they hired me and gave me a chance. But, uh, yeah, so that was, that was about 10 years ago now. Well, it, it really seems like that's, I, I feel like that experience is pretty common, right? There's like no real direct pathway into the industry. I know our program, we're trying to create that, right. This, this, this career, like this pathway, a trajectory for a student to go from, you know, a degree program right into a career. Um, your pathway seems more common, right. Where it's someone gives you a chance and you break in that way. Um, you know, what were some of those lessons learned in like those, those early days, just getting into the industry? I I mean, you had been surrounded by it, working in parks, Mm -hmm. um, and, and growing up in that environment, but what felt different going from sport to like this, the true, the true outdoor industry? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, they are, so sports is an entertainment industry, right? And you're talking about a, a product that is simultaneously created and consumed. And so it's all about experience and you're trying to work through how do we create this experience? And how do we create connections with the experience we're creating? Right. And when you transition into the outdoors, it's a little bit different because those, those experiences are so hyper-personalized, right? We're not all focused. Yes, we all may be hikers, bikers, skiers, runners, whatever the case may be, but those are individualized experiences. And so what we're trying to do is enable people to have those experiences. And, and for me, my first job in the industry was with uh, the Climbing Wall Association, which was uh, the trade association for the industry of indoor climbing. And so at the end of the day, our task was a little bit more similar to to my sport background than than my job now at Estra is. So it was about how do we equip these gyms, which are these centralized experiences, how are we equipping them to be successful and then to turn out a product that is uh, 
safe and that is um, adhering to regulations and and that is community building or and skill building for the people who seek it out, right? And so I think it's really interesting that kind of stock transition um, between sport, which is super entertainment driven, climbing gyms, and now being in the uh, the ski world is a very different uh, different animal. But uh, I, I had a little bit of a soft handoff there, which is nice. And I, I'll say uh, this: I, I encounter people a lot who have my same trajectory, right? I come to the the industry with uh, maybe not as many relevant background or skills as I, I think I need. And, uh, and I think there's a, this transition that's happening. You guys are spearheading this effort, right? It's how do we put those skills in the context of the industry? How do we build authenticity around me as a person who has a passion for these things, but also has the aptitudes and the skill set to, to work in the business of these things I'm passionate about. And, and a lot of times what we see in the outdoor industry historically is people who are Come and you know if you're in the Facebook groups, if you're in the LinkedIn groups, if you're hearing from people in a, at a general level, people are coming saying, "Hey, I I really like hiking. I really like the outdoors. I want to get a job in the outdoors." And I think the the question you really need to be asking is, "What skills and what value do I bring to a brand who works in the outdoors?" Right. And the prerequisite is no longer just having that passion, but also having that passion and bringing value to the brand. And part of what you guys are doing is like. Is, is building up that value in your students. And as students, you need to understand where is my value? What do I bring to the brand? Because I bring something to the table and the brand does as well. And how do we marry those two things together? And, uh, and I think it's an interesting transition we're going through as we get a little more professional in what we do. And as the brands get bigger and more notable, how do we pair that like personal passion with that vocational passion? And, and I think that's the sweet spot that the outdoor industry exists in. And I would I would hate if we drifted too far in one direction or the other because I think we that's the beautiful thing about this industry is we can really marry those two things together and create something that's really special. Right, totally. I I completely agree. And we see a lot of students like in that that first couple of years trying to figure out where they fit um, or or what that trajectory might look like for them, and and a lot of them come in all passion. Right. Um, and yep. they're still trying to figure out what are the skill sets that I have? What are the skills that I want to develop as a part of this program? And, and some come into the program really having a passion, but not being interested in, in design or product, which is what we're all about. Maybe they want to play with the gear, but they don't want to make it. And right. that's where we realize, okay, maybe that's not a good fit. And we need to push you more of the services route. It sounds like you want to be out taking people out using equipment. And, and so we sure. kind of act in that role of trying to funnel people in different directions and, and hopefully get them into, into that pathway. Um, but I think it's interesting, right? It's like, there's, uh, there's, there's tons of roles outside of product that, that, um, you know, that we're not supporting, right. But there's plenty of roles within like finance or legal, or there's all these other angles of, you know, that, um, to break into the outdoor industry, if you have that passion coupled with like that, that really, uh, valuable skill set. So I, I think that, that's really great. Um, you know, I, I think it was interesting what you mentioned about like sport and, and the outdoors and kind of the differences between like an entertainment product and, and outdoor experiences. I, it was probably interesting for you to see in the Olympics, like climbing, right? Be going through that, trying to figure out how to be an entertainment product in the Olympics, right? And how to yeah, become absolutely. a spectator sport. And, and it is interesting. I wonder if we're going to see more of that. I mean, we've seen that with other Olympic sports that are traditionally outdoor, but um, I'm sure that was interesting for you to watch. Yeah, it's, a, it's interesting to see your sport because I, I, so after the climbing wall industry, I also worked with uh, Great Trango Holdings, which is the kind of 
parent company of Trango. They distribute to NIA in the U.S., eGrips, the climbing hold. So really deep roots in the climbing industry. Um, been around for 20 plus years in Colorado. And so I have a lot of background, a lot of connections there. And it's really interesting to see this sport that we know and love become kind of part of a bigger stage and a grander stage. And I think there is a lot of, you know, kind of formalized competition within climbing, but to see it at that highest level, that is the Olympics is really, really fulfilling and really interesting because you, you have to think about viewership, right. And viewership value. And we've seen deep water soloing become part of the, the key like spectator format as we search for ways to make it viewable and, and, compelling from a viewership perspective, what do we do? Right. And so, you know, somebody was like, all right, let's put a bunch of water under there and take the rope away, or let's, let's make it speed climbing, or let's kind of tweak the format along the years to, to make it more viewable so that one, it, it is a commercial product, but even, even beyond that, it becomes something that people can get inspired by. And then you open up that participation to those people because they are now having the opportunities to consume media around climbing and see that at the highest levels and aspire to, to do that themselves, which has been really cool to see. I love this sports marketing angle. I haven't really talked to anyone about it from this perspective. It's really interesting. And, and it, it'll be interesting to see how that you know trickles down or affects the industry. I mean, we're kind of right in the middle of, I feel like a lot of changes, um, especially with climbing, hitting the Olympics. But um, you know, I guess... I, how we talked a little bit about how sport is more, you know, focused on the entertainment aspect. Um, I guess what, what are some of the other unique components to marketing to outdoor consumers? Like if, if there's a student in our program, that's interested in, in, you know, marketing for, for the outdoors, like what do you see as some of the unique aspects of, of that or challenges that, that you run into in your roles? Yeah, absolutely. I really think that, the, the beauty of this job is, and, and any marketing job in the industry, is that you, you're enabling people to, to pursue their passions, right? And we know that it's well-established. Being outside, being in nature, uh, moving your body, all of those are positive things, right? So I've, I've marketed things that are a lot harder to market than, than the outdoors and, and have a lot of different narratives, right? And, and the beauty of what we do is that I can always feel... Like I am helping and enabling people to do the things they love to do, right? We sell gloves. So if I sell you a glove that stands up to the test of time, that keeps your hands warm and gives you good dexterity, then that means for the next three, five, 10 years, that product is going to allow you to do things that you wouldn't be able to do otherwise, or to go longer, go further, go higher, go deeper, all of those things that we value so much and that give us life and our, our soul speaking for us we're allowing people and enabling people to be able to do those things. So I think, you know, at a basic level, it's really fulfilling in that way. Um, and, and even from the product perspective, right? Like building products that are born out of those experiences and that have from, from the idea, you know, inception phase all the way through creation are pointed towards doing something good and doing something that is going to help a lot of people do things that, that they maybe wouldn't be able to do otherwise or do things in a more comfortable setting than they would be able to do otherwise. So I think that's, that's really unique. Um, the other thing is in other industries that are bigger and a little more, I won't say competitive, but, but there are a lot of competitors in the same space. There, there's not a lot of shared interest, right? And there's not a lot of shared 
uh, feedback between brands and things like that. And I mean, even just in the last week, I've talked to marketing people from O'Neill, Howler Brothers, Bill Raven, Scarpa, and we're all just kind of going back and forth and sharing information. And I've talked to reps from Atomic and Solomon and our reps internally who rep other brands. And, and so there really is this community aspect to the industry. And as from a marketing perspective, we get to, to help build that and build community around products and community around things that we all love together. And uh, I think that's super unique and something that I, I always preach about, you know, this industry um, because it's just, it's so, so unique. Well, I guess uh, along those lines, like what are some of the prerequisites or, or qualities that you want to see in, in someone who wants to work in, in, marketing for the outdoors. You mentioned community. I, I, I imagine like one of those, those qualities is you need to be a community builder, right? And we could talk about what community looks like or, or how it's fostered, but like, what are, what are some of the, the qualities that you look for or in, in someone who wants to break into this space? Yeah, well, I will, I'll give you, I'm going to stop right here and give you a compliment because I see you doing that all the time. And I think you're doing a fantastic job of standing at the intersection of your students they're uh, the product at, at USU, but also the industry at large, right? You're, you are reaching out and connecting, you're getting catalogs, you're building libraries, you're doing, um, getting speakers, all those things. And so, you know, a compliment to you because you're doing that and you're a great example for your students. Um, on, on the, you know, the front end, I always consider a few things. So one, when I was in school and I was um, trying to figure out what's next and how do I become someone who is marketable and who is someone that a brand would want to hire, I had some advice from a professor that I remember to this day, and this was 10 plus years ago, but uh, Dr. Sam Todd at Georgia Southern University, much credit to him because he said, you're going to, no matter what you do, as an entry-level employee, you're going to go in and there are going to be things you don't know. And don't let that be the obstacle. Yes, you have this education. Yes, you have whatever experience you have. But there's always, no matter how far you are in your career, but especially at the beginning, there are going to be things you don't know. And don't let that be an impediment. Go figure it out. Don't say, no, I can't do that. Say, I can go figure that out. And that's what I'm looking for in employees and in people on our team is people who will take a little direction and run with it and, and figure things out. We have the biggest knowledge base in the history of humanity at our fingertips is called Google and YouTube and the internet. And so there are resources out there. And every day I am learning new skills through, uh, you know, things I encounter on projects. So I am, I'm the lone marketing person in North America for Hester gloves. And that means I wear a lot of hats and I'm asked to do everything from graphic design to copywriting, to high level brand direction, to budgeting. And so you better believe I am learning new things every single day, if not every single hour. And I never, never say I can't do something unless it is going to be detrimental to the brand for me to try. <laughs> and, uh, and learning to, to put those guardrails up has been valuable for me. But, but again, like back to the, the beginning, it's who can come in and say, yes, I will learn how to do that. Yes, I will figure it out. Um, and I think that that skill set, those soft skills are much more important to me than, than the hard skills. Hard skills are important, but if I'm looking at two candidates, one who can work in the software that I want them to work in, and the other who has those skills that can connect people and who can build community and build rapport and trust, brands survive and fail on those things, on those soft skills and the ability to connect and build community 
way more than they do on can I work in NetSuite or or WordPress or um, you know HubSpot, right? Those things are not as important, and those things can be learned, right? Right. Well, I'm I'm curious, like your trajectory to Hestra, I like are these things that you noticed within the company, and that was something that attracted you to to the opportunity? Was the opportunity to you know, wear a lot of hats or, you know, you, you saw the values of the company is fostering those things that you just talked about. Like, are those things that attracted you to that opportunity? Is that something that you look at when you're looking at companies? Like how much are you interviewing them as much as they're interviewing you? And you're looking for those types of things that you just mentioned. Yeah, absolutely. I think there's a tendency on the front end of your career to really not interview companies that are interviewing you. Right. And my, my, job after the climbing wall industry was with Trango. And I, I met my contact there through them. Chris Plinky, who was, who was still the president at Trango, is an amazing mentor. And he took me to lunch one day and we started talking about job opportunities. And he asked me if I'd be interested. I said, yeah. Well, we had a conversation that day. And then over the next year and a half to the point of me coming on there. And, uh, and by that point, we had had all this like long timeline of working together vocationally of being like building this friendship of all these things. And I even told him at one point, I said, man, I'll do whatever it takes to get a job at Trango. I will come sweep the floors. And, and to his credit, he said, actually, I'm sweeping the floors in our warehouse right now. And that's the kind of leader he is. And I knew in that moment, that's a company I want to work for because he's the president of the company. And he's saying, I have no job is too small for me. And he lives that out. And I learned to live that out through him. My first week on the job, I love to tell this anecdote because it's a, a microcosm of kind of my crash course in the industry and, and just vocation in general. My first week on the job, he said, hey, we got some new products and I need you to go take some product photos. Can you do that for me? I said, yeah, no problem. So I get the products. I go back to the studio. I call my brother and I said, hey, how do you turn on this camera? And what do these numbers mean? <laughs> and I had literally never taken taken a real photo with a, a real nice camera in my life. And uh, luckily I grew to the point where I could do those things and became the staff photographer and, and ended up doing some large scale, you know, photography efforts for the brand. But he put me in that situation and he probably knew, he probably knew I had no experience, but he said, I'm going to, I'm going to put you in there. I'm going to see what happens. Right. And, and I said, yeah, let's do it, man. Let's uh, let me, let me figure it out. And yeah, it probably took way longer. And uh, you looked at the product photos over the year that came a long way. Um, but I knew that. And, and that was, you know, kind of the, the first step. The second step with, with Hestro was thinking about how, how does the brand speak to you and relate to you, right? And, and so my interview process with Hestro was a lot different where I had a lot of questions, and, and I had grown in confidence in my skills and my abilities and knowing what my value was specifically. What do I bring to this brand? And does what I bring to this brand match up with you guys? And do my values match up with, with the brand? And I think over the last five years, we've seen a huge transition into potential employees thinking more and more critically about the brands they work for. Who do you want to align yourself with? What does the brand stand for? Why do they exist? And at Hestra, it's a, it was a no-brainer. This is a, a brand that was founded by Martin Magnuson in 1936 in a little town called Hestra. It still exists in, in Hestra. And now we're in the fourth generation of the Magnuson family owning the company. We own our own factories. We have master certified glove cutters on staff. All we ever do is build gloves. And so we are privately held. We are not beholden to any stockholders, shareholders, anything like that. And so all of those things are things that are valuable to me. 
Now, the students listening, this, these may not be things that are valuable to you, right? You may value other things. Other companies are bigger, have bigger teams, have more um, specialized positions. And so if you're really into copywriting, if you're really into photography, if you're really into something and you want to pursue that vocationally, then find a company who gives you that opportunity, right? Mm-hmm. But for me, I wear a lot of hats. I enjoy the, the dynamic nature of my job. And I know in the long term, it's going to suit me really well to be well-versed in a lot of different things. I want to run a marketing department at some point. I want to grow into certain roles. And so knowing that early on, Chris at Trango pulled me aside and he was like, I see this leadership potential in you. And I want you to remember never to pigeonhole yourself into one thing or another. And that doesn't mean don't over-specialize. That means always having a broader perspective. And so I've always kind of sought to to make those connections across the office, across the brand, even into the headquarters in Europe and figuring out what, at a higher level, what are the the powers that be and the brands I work for thinking about and what matters to them and how can I influence those things in my role now and moving forward, right? Right. I You, you kind of beat me to the punch. I was going to ask you a little bit about the value of you know going and, and becoming a specialist at a big company versus being that jack of all trades generalist and some people might see generalist as like a negative term i see it as really valuable right being able to do yeah. a lot of different things and having knowledge of a lot of different um uh, different things um you you kind of beat me to that but um i i also feel that way right like that opportunity mm-hmm. to go and and get your hands dirty and and wear all those different hats and get those experiences versus you know some some roles at some larger companies that we interact with you know, the, you could go and and just work on on socks, right? It's like that's right. the one thing you do, right? Or you're just yeah. the, the material person over this one line of products, and, and I think there's real value in that. And I want students to go do that if they want to become a specialist um, and really dive into a certain material or you know aspect of product creation. But mm-hmm. I think a lot of our students want to be that generalist and have their um, hands on a lot of different things. And I think if you want to work in marketing, you kind of have to do that too, right? Yeah, absolutely. And, and I will say, so one, for your reading list students, I would highly, highly recommend Range, R-A-N-G-E, by David Epstein. And it talks about how a lot of the world's biggest problems are not solved by specialists because being hyper-specialized is great and we need specialists. But those, even those most specialized problems are solved by context and drawing on other knowledge bases, right? And so he talks about you know, a, um, a musician who specializes in a certain instrument gets super siloed. But if you know at a broader spectrum how all of the instruments work together and how you can play this instrument versus that instrument and how they kind of all of the, the theory behind all of it, then you have the opportunity to be really great at what you do because you have those other things in mind. Or projects that and biggest problems in the world have been solved by drawing on things that are completely unrelated, right? And and so I think there's this aspect of that um, that's really important. And the book goes into great detail about a lot of different scenarios um, of problem solving and how having range is important. That doesn't preclude, and I'll, I'll, this is a caveat, that doesn't preclude specialty, right? Like if you are building socks, then you need to know about how people use socks, why people use socks, their field experience. You need to have the empathy to step into those people's socks, if you will, and uh, and understand the all the things you're putting those products through. But also on the other side of the equation, it's, okay, well, given that, given those needs of those users, how do I connect that with a product that helps them? And so 
what pieces go into that product, what production processes, what materials, what um, what new things, coatings, all of those things are going to help create that downstream product that really changes the game for that person in that activity. And so I think it's more about giving yourself context and, and drawing on knowledge from every part of what you do. Um, and so like in my job, as an example, we do a lot of B2B work. So wholesale specialty is really the core of what we do. And so I'm always on the phone with our retailers saying, what do your, what do your users want? And what in, in the scope of your marketing and your messaging as a brand, as a retailer, your location, what, what makes sense for your people? And, and how do I provide you the resources to, to solve those problems that they're coming in with? And going to our athlete team and, and what problems do they have and really trying to draw on everyone's collective experiences to solve problems across the board through the brand spectrum, right? Right. Totally. No, I love that. I love that. And range is it's, that's a book on my list. I, I, I need to dive into that. I've read summaries. I've read different quotes from it and yeah, yeah. Uh, I need to dive into that one. So I know I love that. So I, you know, I guess another question about specifically about Hestra, um, I guess, how long has the company had a presence in, in the U S and uh, just for context, I'm curious. Yeah. So it's a it's an interesting story, and, and I think Hestra is really good at staying um, true to themselves. And so, like I said, Hestra was founded by a small family in a small town. They came to the U.S. about 17 years ago, and when they did that, they met Todd Katz, who is now the head of our dress division, um, and he's got a, a, an office in our New York showroom, so he runs all of the, the fashion side of our business. So Hester kind of has three silos. So the fashion side, the sports side, which is what we're primarily talking about, and then the job side. So we do work gloves as well. Mm. So Todd started um, kind of the, the distribution arm or the, the, at that point, I think we were kind of transitioning into US headquarters here in, in the front range of Colorado. And then after a couple of years, he moved on and handed it off to Dino Dardano, who's our president today. Well, Dino's background is in family business. So almost from the time Dino could walk, he was in family business. Um, his uh, family, Dardano's shoes, uh, they have these locations all across the, the Denver area. They've done a lot of different things. They do shoe repair. They've really evolved over the course of his lifetime. And so family business, he's family business. And, uh, and you know, it's just like we found this kind of U.S. extension of of our heritage and what we do and what we're dedicated to. And so I really love that story because I think that we talk about working for brands and I really feel like at Hestra, our, our task is not to work here, but it's to steward the brand into the next generation and the next iteration, right? So we're now in four, generation four in Sweden, generation five, we got a bunch of little babies running around the office over there who at some point are going to be my boss and, uh, and I'm stewarding this brand for them and, and I'm pushing this brand into the next generation. So we're, we're really keen on long-term thinking, right? Like sustainability, and the longevity of the brand and doing things the right way, having our own factories and be able to source our own materials, be able to design our own gloves and not share those with anyone else in the industry is really important to us and keeping the craft of glove making alive even um, to that granular level. And so all of that is kind of pushed down to the, the micro level of the US and, and our following here. So we operate like a small family. Sometimes we fight like a small family, but uh, if you're in our offices here, we have a beautiful headquarters in uh, Arvada. So I can see downtown from one window, mountains from the other. And it's always a good um, way to be mindful of the, the, the fashion side of the brand as well as the sports side of the brand. 
But uh, if you're here, you see the, the bees buzzing around the hive. You know, we've got 12 uh, full-timers in the front office, plus our warehouse staff and our seasonal staff. And it's like one big happy family here. So, uh, so we really like to mirror what Sweden does uh, here in the U.S. And I think we've done a pretty good job. I was going to say, does it sound like kind of like a startup? I mean, you're you're building a business in the U.S., but you have the backing of of a you know almost hundred year old company over in Sweden. Yeah. I mean, does it kind of have that flavor? And but but you have the stability of a, a company that's been around for a long time. Yeah, in some regards, it does. You know, so the the dress side of the business hasn't been around as long, and so uh, we really operate each line differently. So. Right now, you know, sport leads the way and sport is what people know us for. And it's where the core of our product line and our revenues come from. And so I spend probably 80% of my time really focused on how do we grow sport, but also how do we bleed the lines a little bit between sport and the other silos? And how do we take the credibility we have in sport, which is, is really born out of glove making expertise and, and doing things kind of from a manufacturing perspective and a sourcing perspective and a design perspective the right way. Um, how do we take those levels of expertise and the level of expertise in sport and kind of push that into these other silos, right? I think a lot of times when we start talking about sport gloves and ski gloves, outdoor gloves, um, all those things, people in the dress world, their eyes light up because they're like, you guys, you have this level of credibility within these other spaces. And so we do bring that to the table when we talk about sport and we talk about job, our, our work gloves. But it's, it is, it's like a startup. You're in a completely different industry, right? You're trying to build credibility and, and get the, you know, it's, it's boots on the ground, right? How do we connect with the right people? Who are the movers and the influencers in this industry who can really be good partners for us and align with what we do really well? And so for the dress side, that looks very like PR forward. And so we just hosted a, uh, a PR showroom specifically for Hestra and we invited you know, 850 media members to that just to try to pump up the brand. And luckily we've gotten placements in Esquire and Gear Patrol and all of these GQ, all these really big mainstream reputable um, media outlets from that. But I don't do that on the job side. Mm-hmm. And the job side is about how do we get partnered up with the right brands who gloves are a complement to what they do and finding partners who are true to what we do in the same space. And building together with that and using credibility through partnership rather than through PR. And so it's a really interesting dynamic. Um, but yeah, those two, two sides of the business really are more startup centric, um, trying to get that flywheel turning right to that point of traction. And, uh, and that's a fun change of pace for me. Well, you know that I love everything outdoor history and heritage. Um, if you've been following our archival <laughs> initiatives, um, yeah. which, by the way, we we've got to get Hester involved in that at some point, considering your Absolutely. career. Um, but I'm curious in in a role in marketing, like, do you feel tied down by having all this history heritage, or is that empowering um, to to have? you know, all of this back catalog to tap into and, and, you know, you don't have to manufacture almost a hundred years of history, right? Um, That's impossible to do. Um, I'm kind of leading you along here. Um, But I guess what is, what is that feeling having, you know, almost a hundred years, you know, backing you up? Yeah, I think it's all about perspective, right? So for a lot of heritage brands, they, I think they stagnate at certain points because there is this rich history and there's a story that needs to be told. And that's, that is great. But I think if you, you just get in the mode and the transactional mode of like, we just tell a story, this is just who we are. Then you really start to kind of rest on your laurels and you say, okay, well, this is what got us here. So we're just going to keep doing that. Right. 
And at Hestra, I think the balance we have to strike is, you know, whenever I go to, to the headquarters in Sweden, there is a room full of archives. And I've actually been lucky enough to put on some of the first gloves we ever made on my hands and to feel the quality there and to see gloves that were made in the 30s and that still could be worn today. And they sit in the vault right now, but uh, but they could, I could put them on and I could go work in them right now and, and they would hold up. And so the, the reality is in about how you, how you frame and use that heritage, right? And so for us, the heritage is this level of expertise and the lessons we've learned along the way rather than just a story we told. And so for us, I always tell our team, like we have one foot in the future, one foot in the past, right? Because we wouldn't be here without that past. And with all those really credible and conscientious decisions that were made, that's why we are where we are. So you can't deny that. You can't, you know, you don't want to hide those things. But at the same time, we're not sitting back and saying like, well, we're not producing anything new. We're not using new materials. We're not doing anything that is counter to what we've done in the past. I think you always have to, to keep that momentum and that trajectory moving in a direction that matches the values of, of the people you're seeking to serve. And for us over the last few years, look at Alpine touring and, and backcountry touring. Like it has exploded, especially through COVID. And you've got people who have a uniquely different set of, of needs for their gloves. And if we were to say, oh, well, you could just use the same gloves for that, then, then we're, we're not serving the people we came to, to serve. And we're not using all of that history to build something that is suitable for those people. So our touring line has gotten extensively bigger over the last couple of years and, and we continue to grow that. And so the question is always what next, but that what next is paired with the knowledge born out of 85 years of asking that same question and, and trying to figure it out. And, and failure, failure is a good thing. And, and that's one thing students like listen to me when I say this, you're going to fail. You're going to fall on your face sometimes. And it's how you use that moving forward that dictates your success in the long run. Take those lessons, put them in that catalog, that middle catalog that you have and, and use those things moving forward, learn from it, grow from it. And that's how, as a brand, how you have to operate no matter how long your heritage is, right? Here's a lesson you learned yesterday or last week and push it forward and you have this base that keeps growing, right? And, and that's, we're lucky to have an 85 year deep base of, of failures and successes to draw on. Um, I think that's a really unique place to be. No, that's awesome. That's great. You, you mentioned, I mean, looking forward, um, you know, with that, with that said, what, wh- where do you see kind of your, I guess your role within the industry moving, like what, what changes do you see? We could talk about changes in platforms, you know, TikTok, you know, on the rise, taking over, we could talk about platforms and tools. Um, but, but I think there's, there's big changes that are just hitting the industry, right? Like talking even more about values, um, when it comes to marketing, um, you know, living those values, actually living those values, not just talking about them. What, what big changes do you see? What's the future of kind of marketing in the outdoor industry what are you seeing yeah i think it's uh simultaneously like very encouraging and very daunting to uh to be a marketer in the industry right now and you know when we talk about platforms i always go back to to this question and and the question is what what messages are being conveyed and what platforms are the people who receive those messages on? And, and can we convey our messages to the people who need to hear our messages well through this platform? Are we set up to do that? And then there's a lot of layers to that, right? 
do we have enough people to to accommodate that, right? Do we have if, if there are now 50 social media platforms that we need to be on, is that is it productive or counterproductive for us to be on those? And and to what degree, right? And and are we as a brand saying we're going to do that? Or are we going to say, hey, that's not really who we're trying to be? And we want to make sure that we are doing the best by our users and and the, the most of our users are on this platform doing this thing, right? So I think you have to be really careful about that creep of platforming and softwares and all those things. I get hit up every single day, multiple times by people trying to sell me some new platform that does this new thing and, and all the above. And at the end of the day, how much bandwidth do I have? And does it make sense for our brand and what we're trying to accomplish? Um, and at a, at a broader scale, the values of the world are changing. COVID, uh, Black Lives Matter, DEI, all of these things, um, sustainability and climate change. I was on a call with the SIA yesterday about climate change. And when it, just as a caveat, if you were a student and you were looking to get into an industry, seek out resources through the SIA, through Outdoor Industry Association. There are so many good resources that they are putting out right now. It's unbelievable. Those guys are doing a fantastic job of equipping the next generation of leaders in our industry. And, uh, and, and reach out to those, those organizations because they have tons and tons of stuff. We were walking through like role-playing scenarios and things around climate change yesterday. And I think what it boils down to as, as marketers is we are now like feet to the fire, right? You have to go back to your brand and the powers that be at your brand and say, what, what are we all about? And, and where are we, are we putting our money where our mouth is, right? And, and what does it mean for us to be an inclusive brand? What does it mean for us to champion climate change? And the days of you just putting a badge on your website or, or just saying something are over. Action is all that matters. And I love that because there's we're not sitting in meetings just saying, oh, yeah, well, let's just partner with this organization, just say this thing and just throw some money at it. People and consumers are more and more wanting to buy from brands they identify with. So what are your consumers doing and, and who do they identify with and, and what are their values and how can you come alongside them and, and build things that are mutually beneficial and things that are um, going to move the industry and the world forward. And, and as a microcosm, you talk about inclusivity and there's this huge push in the snow sports industry specifically to, to build better representation. You don't see a lot of athletes of color being represented in the industry and it's not because they don't exist. Don't let anyone tell you that because they do. And there are phenomenal athletes out there. And there are people who are, have wonderful stories and are doing everything everyone else is and aren't getting a seat at the table. And so our job is to be able to give those people a seat at the table. And what happens when we do that? You know, at the end of the day, bringing more people into the fold is a wonderful thing. And it's a wonderful opportunity. And I see this as such an encouraging moment for us and an inflection point where I can look back. And before I would have said like, yeah, I sold ski gloves for a living. And now I get to say, I can actually institute a cultural change in this, in this industry and beyond in my seat, which is so cool. It is so cool. And that's something that is just really taking hold right now. So guys, we have like this incredible opportunity to do something that creates value and that gives people a seat at the table who have never had it. And I'm, I'm so, so, so excited. With that. I love that. I think, uh, like you said, like more than ever, it seems like as a marketer, you can't be blind to what's happening in the larger world, right? And and you have to you have to respond to that, right? And and um, challenge things within your own organization. But I think that's been really revealing this, you know, the last last couple of years, especially. But 
like as a marketer, if you want to work in marketing, you have to know what's happening in the world, right? Um, you, you can't just live in your own brand and, you know, pump out, you know, marketing campaigns without understanding what's happening in the world. Like you have to be plugged in. Is that ever hard for you? Cause you have to kind of always be on and always being plugged into what's going on and, um, and mindful of what you're sharing. Is that ever hard for you to like step away and, and not be plugged in all the time? Yeah, yeah. I mean, like I said, I'm the only marketing person here in the U.S., so I, I am doing a little bit of everything. And so there are times of the year where it is very hard to pull my head out of the sand of, you know, okay, I've got to get these ads created. I've got to source these photos. I've got to cut this video. I've got to make these partnership decisions. I've got to figure out where we are in, in relation to budgets. And and there's a lot of head down stuff that, that can happen, right? And so the challenge for me is always how do you pick your head up and make sure that the, the ship's going in the right direction when you are your head down in you know all of the day-to-day stuff. And and the beauty of it is that I I am more and more I'm seeing this as an opportunity, right? And and I think a lot of marketers, the tendency is when your head down and something else gets put on your plate, it's like, oh, here we go again, like just more stuff for me to do. But the beauty of the, the things we're experiencing right now in this transition is, is seeing the, the value and that the opportunity that we have in that and our, our potential to have a role and in, in bringing new voices to the conversation and to really influencing the trajectory of an entire industry and, and an entire culture and, and those around us. And so I think every time I, I have those thoughts, I have to stop myself and say, you know what, like this opportunity is amazing and you have a, you have a, a really good chance to to bring more folks into the conversation and that's always a good thing and uh and yeah it could be messy and i think you know as, a, as an aside a lot of the brands in the industry and in the world right now are specifically in the u.s are trying to figure out and, and, and are are gun shy around addressing some of these big issues that that we're facing right with climate change with sustainability with COVID restrictions and how you operate your business with DEI. How do you as a brand reconcile all of those things with your values? But at the end of the day, there's this huge opportunity to, to see the long-term. And again, I go back to the long-term view, right? What does it look like five years from now? And how will our industry be new and, and kind of renewed through this? And how can we just completely change the way we do business for the better? And, uh, and I don't think we've had that opportunity in quite a while. And so it's really awesome to be a part of, of that evolution right now. And we have to see it as opportunity to create more and more value for our brands and for our customers. Along those same lines, um, uh, you know, a lot of what you're talking about, these are like internal conversations, right? It sounds like there's, there's debates within organizations, within teams, like you're, um, you know, trying to be very intentional about what you do as, as a, as a company, as a brand. Um, sometimes after a long day of, uh, you know, when I'm working and I don't feel like I, you know, produced anything or post, you know, posted that day or whatever it might be like some kind of physical, physical representation of work. I, I sit back and think, did I work today? Um, but I feel like more and more, I realize that like, students getting into this industry will realize that a lot of your work is like having these conversations and it's a lot more of your work is like strategy and, and, and discussions and debates and, and, and being like trying to be intentional about the decisions that you're making more than sometimes like the decision being made. I don't, does that make sense? Sometimes maybe that's a personal issue that I'm working through is 
sometimes I feel like, what did I do today? But it's like, no, I have, we, we made some huge strides when it, when it came to like discussing this as a program and, and making decisions and moving forward and, um, you know, deliverables will come from that. But do you ever find yourself doing that? It's like, wow, I just like had conversations today and talked about where we're going. Um, sometimes that doesn't feel like work, but it really is. Yeah, absolutely. And there's kind of two facets to that. So the first is that work is evolving and through COVID and through all of the technological evolutions and all the other things we're seeing, work does not look like it used to, right? There are a lot of automations and a lot of efficiencies that we've built in over the years and we haven't accounted for that in terms of how we view our work. Mm. And so never hesitate to have that conversation. You know, I was downstairs. We have two levels here. I'm uh, on the second level. And I was downstairs talking to some of our dealer services folks this morning. And one of them you know, stopped me and said, hey, you know, I really appreciate you coming out and having these conversations with us because it makes us feel like a team. And now I am more informed and, and, and I, as Drew, am more informed having heard from them and having those connection points. And so you'll never, never underestimate the power of, of conversation. And, and I am a lifelong learner. I'm married to an educator and we talk about this all the time. Like, how do you continue to learn? throughout life and have this growth mindset and saying, I'm never done learning. You, the one thing that you can never stop doing is learning, right? Like you could, there's always more to learn. There's always this, it, learning is infinite. Your capacity may be limited and all of these other things may be limited, but your, your capacity to learn something new is, is not. And so at the end of the day, you know, never, never take conversations and those touch points at the opposite beyond as, as not work. And I have, I have done this this year. I've tasked myself with some things at the beginning of the year around one, how do I give back? Having been in this industry 10 years and Chase, you and I talked about this, you know, like I am an open book and I want to share the information that I have and the things I've learned over years because that moves us forward. And, and the more we share information, the more we kind of give feedback and, and kind of rip off of each other, the better and better we get. Uh, but the other thing is, I, in, a term, in, in addition to kind of giving, I also want to learn more from people who have been even a step ahead of me or multiple steps ahead of me. So I am the first guy to tell you, I'm on LinkedIn like once a week, you know, trying to find folks who I can learn something from. And I reach out to people all the time, like, hey, man, like I, one, I'm not looking for a job, but I, I, I just want to pick your brain. You, I respect the work you've done. I respect this thing you did. I saw this thing you did. It's awesome. I can't learn more about that from you. Um, and I will, I'll shout out, uh, you know, Melanie, who's the, Melanie Hood is the marketing manager at Scarpa. We had a conversation last week about DEI and how Scarpa is doing what they're doing as a business who is similar to Hester. I went into that conversation saying, I don't know where we're going in this. I know we need to be a part of it and I have some ideas, but I, I want to like talk through these with you and see what your experience has been. And Lauren Samuels, who's I believe is the, she's a Utah uh, Utah person, so she's been around the, the state for a long time, but was on the U.S. ski team, and she's really spearheading a lot of DEI initiatives in the industry as well. And so I will, it is not uncommon for me to go to the phone and call Lauren and be like, hey, what about this thing, right? And and not being afraid to ask the question. Always ask the question. Always ask the question. I have talked to so many people who are like, no, I can't do that. I can't, I, I don't, I'm not qualified and, or whatever to ask that person that question. I've had people just completely stonewall me, which is fine, right? Um, but I have always made the habit of being an open book. And, and that caveat or good kind of goes into um, the other side of the conversation, which is like, that work is 
is always like self-propelling, right? And so when you start asking those questions, then you get those answers. And whether the answer is negative, positive, whatever, then it propels you into this next phase of, okay, this works and, and this doesn't work. And this is now knowledge I have that I can go and put towards my work. And imposter syndrome is a term we hear a lot these days. And if you're in the outdoor industry, you're going to feel it, man. Like you are going to feel it. I was in the climbing industry. I was a very, and am a very mediocre climber. I am also a very mediocre skier. I am not hugging cliffs, but I love to ski. I'm a good skier. I am not a great skier. I am a good climber. I am not a great climber. And I've spent so much time fretting over that, that I would be discovered, you know, or whatever the case may be. And that's not my role, right? My role is to understand the sport at a personal level and to be able to connect with the users that exist in those spaces. And so being authentic in that and giving yourself that break and, and even talking to these people who I, I respect so much, I'm like, dude, I shouldn't even be able to sit in the same room as you, but I'm going to ask you the question because I've fretted over this message for two weeks now. It's sat in my drafts and I'm just going to send it. And, and there's a lot to be said for that. And I've learned a lot over the years, man, get out of your own way. There is no imposter syndrome. Ask the question, learn the thing, do it and do it well and, and move forward. That's awesome. That's, that's great advice. I, I feel like that's probably a good place to wrap it up. We could have a whole part two, just about, um, that growth mindset, you know, how to reach out to people. That's something that I preach to our students all the time. It's, mm-hmm. uh, if you're a freshman or first year student in our program and you don't have a LinkedIn account and you're not connecting with all the guest speakers that are coming in that, that first semester to your intro to product creation class, you got to change that because, you know, we, we just had the North face here just last, last week talking to the students and, and, uh, that guest speaker, um, you know, gave out his comfort, his contact information. Right. Um, you know, so I'm all about that, you know, get, you know, trying to not only teach these students how to design and develop, develop products, but, um, how do you build meaningful relationships in the industry? So that by the time you graduate, you can jump right into a role and, uh, be a part of a team. So we, we could have a whole nother conversation because I know you're passionate about that as well, but uh, I, I guess any parting advice, um, as we kind of wrap up to, to students who want to break in or anything that we missed? Um, you know, I don't think there's, there's much that we missed. We could talk for hours on this stuff. I love, uh, you know, talking about industry culture and, and, you know, to the students listening, I, I am happy to be a resource to you. Um, I, it took me a long time to kind of get into this industry and find my way. And so whatever I know is, is fair game to you. Um, I am happy to, to share those things. I'm, I'm lucky and blessed and fortunate to be in the position that I'm in and super grateful um, to, to have been here and, and been able to, to do the things I've done thus far. We've got a long road ahead of us, but uh, I'm looking forward to, uh, to getting to know you all. Uh, feel free to reach out on LinkedIn. You can find me uh, there. And uh, yeah, just, you know, Keep, keep head down, learn the things you, you want to learn, but also don't get siloed into your classes and all those things. Those are important, but also reach out and make those touch points, grab those people's attention, you know, ask the question, always ask the question, never say you can't do something and always ask the question. Those are my two, my two takeaways here. So, uh, yeah, thank you so much. Yeah. Thank you for taking the time. This has been awesome. And, and again, we, we can always do a part two. There's always a part two out there somewhere. Oh yeah. I'm up for it, man. Let's do it. <laughs> Okay. No, sounds good. And hopefully, hopefully I'll be out at an outdoor retailer show again, uh, again in the future and we can, we can meet in person. So. Most definitely. Yeah. We, uh, if you're ever in the Denver area, come by and see us. We are right off I-70. So, uh, it's a really convenient spot. That's awesome. I will next time I'm out there. So thanks again, Drew. 
Thanks for listening to the Highlander podcast. For more conversations with outdoor leaders, subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts, watch episodes on the Outdoor Product Design and Development YouTube channel, or on opdd.usu.edu slash podcast. Follow along on Instagram at USU Outdoor Product and let us know how you're enjoying the show.